Well, if you wanted to travel from the lowest point to the highest point in the continental United States, uh, you know, probably, you don't have to travel uh, that far. It's not only in one state, but it's just in one county from uh, Death Valley's uh, Badwater Basin, 279 feet uh, below sea level to Mount Whitney, 14,505 feet in one county. According to Google Maps, it's 119 miles. Anybody done that? Anybody? Okay, Ray's done that. So see Ray after the service. Um, That's not what the sermon's about, but it it is just amazing that God has done that. Put this really low place and this really high place in the contiguous 48 states so close together. And this is uh, how my brain works. So if you're wondering why I'm talking about that, it's just interesting in God's word that the very shortest psalm, the very shortest chapter actually in the whole Bible is just in the same neighborhood of the very longest. We're not going to look at it today, but look at Psalm 117. The very shortest chapter in the Bible is 117. And then we flip over to 119, the longest chapter in the Bible in the very same neighborhood. It's interesting, the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. For those of you that weren't here last week, we looked at one unit of Psalm 119. And today we're looking at that next unit. If you weren't here last week, or even if you were a little bit of a refresher, Psalm 119 is composed of 22 stanzas, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Last week, we looked at the stanza for the letter L or Lamed, and today we're looking at uh, the letter M or Mame. Each of those stanzas have eight poetic lines, and I want to suggest it's very likely that the reason there are eight lines in each stanza is that throughout the book of Psalms, there are eight words used repeatedly to refer to the word of God. Six of those words are in our little unit today, verses 97 through 104. Depending what translation you have, your your words may be different. The version that was just read is different than what I have. But let me just highlight a couple of them. Hopefully you have your Bibles open today or your devices open. Have them silenced, but have them open to the scriptures, to the word of God. But let me just hit six of those that are in today's unit. In verse 97, law. In verse 98, commands. In verse 99, statutes. In verse 100, precepts. In verse 102, laws, which isn't just a plural of law, but is a different word than the word in 97. Law and laws are two different words. And then verse 103, the word words. And there are a couple others. And these eight words are repeated throughout Psalm 119 to show the multifaceted, multidimensional beauty of the word of God. I am suggesting, and many many have before me, that that is the reason we have eight lines in each of these stanza, each of these stanzas, each of these 22 stanzas. If you haven't deducted this by now, Psalm 119 is not a piece of literature that was just thrown together. It is a beautiful, sophisticated piece of literature, piece of scripture. So Psalm 119, that's what we're looking at today, this this one unit. Uh, We don't know 
uh, who wrote this psalm, as was mentioned last week, but we know that he loves the word of God. One writer says this about Psalm 119. He writes this, as one admires a diamond from every angle in order to truly appreciate its beauty, Psalm 119 sets the word of the Lord before the reader and rotates it by degrees. Rotates it by degrees so that we can truly appreciate its beauty. The psalmist, whoever wrote Psalm 119, we don't know who he was, but we know unequivocally and absolutely that he loves the word of God. He loves it more than diamonds. He loves it more than mountain biking. He loves it more than the stars that he sees at the night, in the night sky. He loves it. So here's what I want to do today. Um, You and I, we fall somewhere on a spectrum when it comes to loving the word of God. Uh, Some of us, some of you are over here with the psalmist. We'll call this the the right-hand side, or we'll call this the the tethered side. I don't know if you're familiar with that word, uh, tether. Uh, To attach someone to something else as if by means of a line or a cord. So have this image of, of a boat that has a couple lines tethering it to the dock. And that boat is secure. And the psalmist is, is like that boat and he is tethered to the scriptures on this imaginary spectrum we have here. He's over here on this far side and he loves the scriptures. And so my prayer for you and for me today is that wherever you are, and I'll talk about the other side of the spectrum in just a moment, wherever you are in this spectrum, that God by his grace would move you that direction. That's my prayer for myself. That is my prayer for you. This is a man who wrote this psalm who absolutely loved the word of God. And part of that love is seen in the creativity and the forethought and the complexity of this particular psalm that we're just scratching the surface of last week and this week. But I want to be very honest and real. Many of you, many of us are not over here. Some of us are are over on this side. And the reality is we are disinterested for many of us in the word of God. It is not something we we care much about or at all. I mean, even a diamond, some some of you here are like, I don't really, I mean, myself, I'm personally this way, like that illustration of a diamond, I'm... I'm not someone who wants to gaze. I want to gaze at the stars, but I'm not just too interested in gazing at a diamond. Uh, Anybody with me? Can I get an amen on that? I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm just, uh, we're different is what I'm trying to say. And some of us today, some of us here today, we don't really have much much interest. And so there's this spectrum of, of, of disinterest to someone who would write a psalm like this about the scriptures. So the person that's over here on this side has no tether. So we have no tether and we have the tethered side. This person on the extreme side over here, this person is floating in the postmodern pond of self-determined reality. 
There are many people, perhaps here today, and many people in our society and culture that are just discovering who they are and have no interest in truth or something outside themselves. And so they just have no interest. They, they don't see it as beautiful. And, and it's not something that they have an affection for. So wherever you are in this spectrum, my prayer is that you will, through God's working today, move in the direction of loving the scriptures. I have six sentences of what the psalmist is like. The man who wrote this psalm out of this unit, out of verses 97 through 104. I've got six sentences about him. And my prayer is that you and I would move to be more like him. So let's, uh, let's begin taking a look at uh, verse 102. I'm going to start right in the middle of the psalm. And you'll see the reason for this in just a moment. Take a look at Psalm 102, or verse 102. 90, psalm 119 is where we are in verse 102. He says there, I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. He hasn't departed from your laws. He hasn't departed from the words that he has internalized and has memorized and has dwelt upon and finds beautiful. Why is that? I'm starting at verse 102 to say the reason that he hasn't departed is because of his relationship with God. You see it in this, these two words, you yourself. God himself taught the psalmist about the beauty of his word. So the beauty of the word of God, the beauty of the word of God that is inside the psalmist came not out of worshiping the scriptures, but out of a relationship of worshiping the covenant-keeping God of Israel. That's who taught him. And so that's how he came to the word. We don't worship the word. We worship Christ alone. There is no other God before him. So at the very outset here, uh, my, my first emphasis, my first sentence is this. My first sentence is the psalmist loves God above all else. We see this in 102 and it's out of that relationship that he comes to love the word of God and write Psalm 119. Now, Just a reminder of, of, of who we are as human beings. And we've looked at this in recent weeks and in recent, recent months. And we'll look at this again. I'll say this again, that you and I are first and foremost desiring people or loving people. More than we are anything else, we, we love things. We desire things. One uh, author, James K.A. Smith, he writes this, to be human is to love. And it is what we love that defines who we are. And, and what the psalmist loves ultimately is God. And because of that love, he now has a love of his communication, of his word. And he has written this beautiful psalm. So the psalmist loves God above all else. So if we're going to move over to this side, to where the psalmist is and be tethered to the scriptures, it, it begins with a relationship of seeing the beauty and glory of God and who he is and what he has done and how he cares for us. So that's verse 102. Let me say this as well in, in way of application. So it, it's really difficult 
And in fact, it's impossible for me to tell you and say, here are the three steps on how to love God. It, it involves a work of the spirit. It's a spiritual work. But I think when it comes to application, we can some, learn some things about how, how we don't get there to love God, perhaps. An anti-application, I'm not sure what you want to call this. But the path to loving the word of God is to love God more, not to love other things less. You get what I'm trying to say? Let me, let me give you a picture of this. So some of you, you know, we, we love different things when it comes to reading. Some of you love, perhaps, some of you love Shakespeare. Anybody? A- anybody? Okay. All right. That's a bad example. Okay. Okay. We got, okay. I have some, I got, I got some hands. I got some, I got at least one hand. Some of you love sh- Shakespeare or some more intellectual people in a church somewhere love Shakespeare. Um, other people love, say, the sports page. Uh, as a boy, I can remember uh, watching my dad. You know, uh, you have certain memories as, as a child. Remember newspapers? They used to come to the house. Anybody remember those things? So the newspaper would come to the house and dad would go and get that newspaper. And what did he do with that newspaper? Four-fifths of that newspaper was worthless. It was just thrown away. He went straight to, what was it? The sports page. I mean, it was the only thing he needed. You know, on Sunday, there's like this newspaper that comes that's like this thick. All he needed was, was, was the sports page. He had this affection for the sports page. That's what he wanted to read. Some have an affection for reading Shakespeare. Why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because sometimes we might get the idea that in order to figure out how to love the Bible, to love scripture, we need to like love other things less. And I don't think that's the way that we actually get there. Now that might happen, but it doesn't get there by saying, oh God, I I shouldn't be loving Shakespeare so much. I shouldn't be loving the sports page so much. It, It happens rather by actually the spirit working in us and drawing us to the beauty and glory and, of God and his word. And these other things just get put in their place. We don't need to dial them down in order to learn to love God and to love his word. So the psalmist loves God above all else. I want to share with you one more story uh, about how the way to get here is not by loving other things less. Now, we only have maybe one or two Shakespeare lovers here. Do we have any cat lovers here? Any cat lovers? Okay, I saw some hands go up right away there. I want to tell you just a brief story about a a woman who loved her cat deeply. And she had had this cat for a long time, and she had to put the cat down. And she is grieving over the loss of her cat. She's grieving over everything about it. And it is just like her grief is kind of dominating her life. And so she writes a letter. This was in 1956. She writes a letter to C.S. Lewis, who was not just a good author, but he pastored through writing letters to people. And so I, I don't know very many internationally known Christian authors today. Maybe they exist and we just don't know about their letter writing that write letters to people across an ocean, like Christians who need some help. They need a pastor. And so this woman writes to C.S. Lewis because she feels like she's grieving too much over her cat and that she loves her cat too much. So August 18th, 1956, he writes her this letter. I'm not going to read you the whole letter, but one sentence of the letter 
and the, and the, and the benediction of the letter. He says to her, I will never laugh at anyone for grieving over a loved beast. He calls the cat a beast. But then he says this, I think God wants us to love him more, not to love creatures less. You know, she may have been expecting to get this religious letter back from this man saying, yes, you shouldn't love your cat so much. It's ruining your life. Stop loving your cat so much and then you'll be happy. No, he tells her explicitly, don't love your cat less. And then I love how he signs the letter. He says, God bless you and Fanda. Fanda is the dead cat. He signs his letter, God bless you and Fanda, exclamation point, yours, Jack Lewis. Back to our psalm here. I'm talking about how we move to this place where we would absolutely love the scriptures, love the word of God, love the communication of God to us. And it comes and flows out of a relationship to him. There's not some tricky path of putting this other good thing like the sports page or Shakespeare or our love for a cat down. It is our love for God that needs to increase. And then the, our other loves will be put in their proper place. The psalmist loves God above all else. This is why I started with 102, because it is for you yourself. It is God himself that has taught the psalmist how to love the scriptures, the word of God, much of which he has internalized. So let's go back to the beginning now of this unit, verse 97. Look at verse 97 with me. He writes, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Now, what does this mean? This is hyperbole, right? This doesn't mean that he doesn't eat, that he doesn't work, that he just goes in a room and meditates on the scriptures 24 hours a day. He doesn't sleep. That, that's not what it means. It means as he goes about his day, and in ancient Israel, almost everyone would have worked in an orchard or in a vineyard. As he goes about his day, you could picture him working in a vineyard, meditating on the word of God, meaning he has internalized it. So he doesn't have his iPhone with me, with him when he's in the vineyard in 1500 BC or 1000 BC or 500 BC or whenever this was written. He, he doesn't have his, his phone there. He doesn't have his Gideon's pocket Bible with him. He doesn't have a copy, a scroll almost certainly, even in his home. He has internalized the scriptures. And so he is meditating on it all day. As he rides his donkey, as he picks the olives, as he sits down to eat, he is meditating on the scriptures because he has internalized the scriptures. If we go back, you don't need to turn there, but if you look back or listen back to verse 11 of Psalm 119, he says, I have hidden your word, God, in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is in his heart. He has memorized it. He has dwelled upon it and he has memorized scripture that is relevant to him. So in verse 97, where it says, how I love your law, the word there for law is the word Torah. And if you've been attending Cornerstone for some time, you know that every word has a range of meaning. In every language, every word has a range of meanings. Almost no words, 
mean just one thing. And this word Torah has a range of meaning as well. At times, it means the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, and, and sometimes it means the, the legal sections like the Ten Commandments and the other statutes that would tell the believer uh, that's part of the covenant community in ancient Israel how to live. And in the very beginning of Psalm 119 and in verse 97, I want to suggest that that's how the word Torah is used. So, so to simplify it, to oversimplify it, perhaps what he's saying when he says how I love your law, he's saying how I love the Ten Commandments, how I love those sections of the first five books of the Old Testament in our language that, that tell me and describe to me how to live and what to do. I love those because they guide my life. He's memorized scripture that is relevant. I have six sentences today describing the psalmist. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will move you and will move me to be like him. Number one is that the psalmist loves God above everything else. Number two is the psalmist has memorized relevant scripture to his life. God wants us to internalize his word. Many of us have internalized songs that we sing because we listen to them and the music kind of were programmed or wired by God to, to remember those songs. I could start singing certain songs right now from your teenage years, even if no matter how old you are, if you're a teenager now, or if that was decades ago, and you would start singing those songs. You might not want those songs to be sung, right? You might not want to remember those words, but you know them. We want the spirit to help us to do that with the word of God so that we can join the psalmist and dwell on them all day long. So what I want you to be asking yourself right now is what do I need? What scriptures do I need to memorize so that I can dwell on them as I go about life? This is what he did. How I love it. Because otherwise I go in this direction, I go in that direction, I follow all kinds of paths that are wrong, that are bad. So if I'm thinking thoughts late at night or early in the morning or in the middle of the day or even in the middle of the night when I'm sleeping and I wake up and I'm thinking thoughts that are, that are evil, that are bad, I can run to Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, praiseworthy, think about such things. I can run to that verse because I've hidden it in my heart. And when my mind is tempted or thinks things that I don't even want to be thinking, I displace that with the actual truth of God's word that I would rather be thinking upon. Where you have a massive temptation, most of us have some kind of temptation in our life that we struggle with and we've struggled over and over and for some time. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I have several people coming to my mind right now. Over the years, I've had several people for whom alcohol 
is their temptation. Now, Jesus' first miracle was water into wine. You can have a glass of wine and glorify Jesus. Can I get an amen to that? But alcohol for some is this massive temptation that literally kills people, spiritually kills people, physically kills people. And I've talked with people who hide alcohol out in the woods on their property and lie and deceive their family members and go out there and drink. There's this this demonic calling. They call it spirits. And they're drinking out in their woods and then trying to cover up the smell and come back inside. They need to, in part, to overcome this temptation. All of us, not just the person for whom that is their temptation, but all of us have a variety of temptations. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us there is no temptation that is not common to man. So that temptation, many people have to go to the bar, to hide the alcohol in the woods. Many people have it. The scriptures remind the person who's internalized that verse and that power of that verse of the word of God is available to the person who's, who's wandering and, and in that, that battle. Am I going to go out in the woods? Am I going to engage in this again? Or am I going to follow the Lord and the psalmist and delight in the law that I meditate on all day long, but it is the law that is relevant to me. This is what's coming out in verse 97. The psalmist has memorized scripture that speaks to him. All scripture is profitable, but it is not all equally relevant to our lives. And so we need to be honest with ourselves and memorize the scripture that we need to memorize so that we can retrieve it. Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Men have memorized that word of God, that truth, that verse. And God has given them strength to go on a path of righteousness and purity instead of a path that leads to momentary pleasure led by spiritual death. So the psalmist loves God above all else. The psalmist has memorized relevant scripture, verse 97. Let's come back to our text, 98 through 100. 98 through 100, and I'll pick up the pace. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Now, if there's a scripture verse that can be taken out of context easily, this is it, okay? Now, I don't know if you're tracking the way I first track when I read this. I may just be more sinful and fleshly than you, but I mean, when I read verse 99, when I first read this, I have more insight than all my teachers. I mean, we've all been there, right? Yeah, if only I could teach this class and show this teacher how to do this. We've all been in stages of our lives, whether it lasts for decades or whether it lasts for moments where we're the brightest and best and we could do everything right. And, and when I read this, that's, that's wrongly how I, how I first take it. And so when we read the scriptures and it seems like what it's saying is wrong, 
I've said this before many times, and I'll say it again. The deficiency is with us. The deficiency isn't with the scriptures. So what, what, what is he getting at here? We don't have time to look at all of them, but let me look at, let me just read one of them to you. Scripture interprets scripture. So when we read something, say, this, this guy's sounding arrogant. He's smarter than all of his teachers. He's, he's better than, than the leaders, than the elders. Um, if we look back at verse 23 of Psalm 119, he writes this, though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. What we see, if we study Psalm 119 carefully, even though we don't know who wrote it, it's anonymous, is that the elders, the leaders in his day were not worthy to be followed. They weren't good leaders. Something that none of us in America or in our state know about right now, right? There are often times throughout history where our leaders are not people that we should be following morally or spiritually. That was the situation for the psalmist. He's not saying I'm more intellectually gifted than anyone who's ever taught me. Although he's obviously an intellectually gifted person who wrote this. He's saying, I have had to rely on the word of God because many of the men who should be examples for me are actually anti-examples. So what I'm saying here, what I'm seeing here is that he's desperate. The psalmist is desperate for truth. And so this is one of the things that God has to have in us if we're going to move from the untethered place. I don't really care much about the Bible. I don't really care much about the word of God. I haven't internalized it. It's not something I meditate on day and night. It's not something I look to for guidance. If we're going to move from that or wherever we are in this spectrum to a place over here, we have to be desperate. And so a careful reading of Psalm 119 will reveal that he's desperate because his leaders were not worth following. And so his dependence upon the word of God was that much more crucial for his life to be successful and joyful. One of my favorite stories, don't have time to look at it all today, but one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is the friends who were so desperate for their paralytic friend to get to Jesus. You know the story. Most all of you know it. They, had, they climb up on the roof. I, I mean, I, I'm looking at the roof over here. It wasn't a metal roof, but it was a, a, a roof that was full of dirt and all kinds of things. And they, they climb up there. Jesus is speaking inside this room, this building, and this massive crowd, and they have to get their friend to him. So what do they do that climb up with the paralytic guy on top of the roof and dig in the roof to get him to Jesus? And when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of his friends, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. And he ends up healing. And we don't have time to look at that story, but I'm connecting that with the desperateness of the psalmist of 119. In order to get to this place where you are tethered to the word of God, you have to be desperate for God. Now, he often uses trials in our lives to make us desperate. So if you are here today and your life is unraveling, I'm not here to say that's good. It's not. 
But I am here to say that part of the response of unraveling is a recognition of your desperateness for the Lord Jesus Christ and then your desperateness for his word, for the gospel, for the scriptures, for his precepts, for those scriptures that are especially relevant to your life. The psalmist is desperate for the truth. So pray for desperation. It would be really great if we could get to desperate places without trials. Maybe that's what you would pray for. But the scripture says to us, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because this develops perseverance in us. It develops perseverance and desperateness. And it sends us to the Lord Jesus and to his word. The psalmist is desperate for the truth. That's number three. Did I tell you I was picking up the pace? Let me pick it up a little bit more. 101. 101. And the very end, we're going to look at the end of 104 too. 101 and the end of 104. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. And then a similar theme, the very last sentence of the psalm, of this unit of the psalm. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. Does this mean he's perfect? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that generally speaking, there are well-beaten paths in life that the world would have us follow. They're well-beaten and they're often very popular and they often look good. He's saying, I'm not taking those paths. I'm taking the paths that your word guides me on. He's rejecting the popular but unbiblical paths of life. If we are going to be tethered like a boat to a dock with secure lines and it's just stable and secure and it's not going to float away. We have got to be tethered tightly to the scriptures and we have to be aware of the deception of how paths look really good. But that's not where I'm going. I'm going to follow the scriptures. This is where preaching gets difficult to be specific and talk about application. So let me be somewhat general and still specific because I don't know precisely what you need. In other words, what are the popular paths that you may go down that are not biblical? I don't know. But let me give you a couple examples of what the scriptures speak about. And again, I don't have time to read it all. You may want to read Matthew 25, 31 through 40. Those of you, many of you are familiar with this passage. It's where he separates the sheep and the goats at the end of time. And, and the, the folks who are followers of Christ are, are surprised. And, and they're saying, you know, what, 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 what did we do? And, and how did this come about? And I'm greatly paraphrasing here that they, they seem to me like confused. And Jesus says to them in part, this is a summary and a paraphrase. He says to them, you fed me. You visited me in prison. And the key word there is the word me. You visited me. And so they're confused. We didn't visit you. 
We didn't feed you. What are you talking about? And then he says, whatever you did for the least of these, in other words, there are prisoners and there are homeless or hungry people that are followers of Christ or who are going to become followers of Christ. And Jesus so identifies with them. Those sheep are his and he's reminding them, you fed me, you visited me in prison. Now, how does this relate to popular paths? Do we, that is, I hate labels, but like conservative Bible-believing Christians, do we have a reputation of being like hard on crime and building bigger prisons and forgetting about those who have transgressed the law? Someone say yes. We have that reputation. The reputation of Jesus' followers is that they feed the hungry and they visit the prisoner. Because Jesus so identifies with the least of these, some of his followers who are in prison and who are hungry, and you fed me. The evidence that they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, is that their lives were changed and they didn't follow popular, well-beaten paths, but they followed the scriptures. And Jesus is declaring that. So the psalmist rejects popular but unbiblical paths. That's out of verses 101 and 104. 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. I love this verse. Because very simply, you see that he loves the word of God. It's sweeter than honey. Again, if you want to paraphrase and change honey to chocolate chip cookie or coffee buzz Ben and Jerry's ice cream or popcorn or anyone going to Mexican food today? Anybody? Do you, if you love Mexican food, say amen. I mean, this guy is looking for what he loves the most, honey. And he's saying, the scriptures are sweeter than that to me. God, would you make me like that? God, would you make us like that? The psalmist acquired a taste for scripture. That's my fifth sentence about the psalmist as I'm praying for God's grace in my life and your life to move us to this place of being tethered. He acquired a taste for it. We don't come out of the womb liking the scriptures more than honey or chocolate chip cookies. We don't. God has to work in us to make us that way. We acquire that taste by his grace. God, give me that taste, that love. One writer says this, the word of the Lord is more than a simple spiritual nourishment, such as a feeding tube would provide. It is a treat that provides enjoyment as well as nourishment. And that's the case for the psalmist. Last point comes out of verse 104. We've already looked at the latter part of verse 104, but the beginning part of 104, he says there, I gain understanding from your precepts. I gain understanding from your precepts. We've all gone through phases of life where we know everything, whether it's a moment or whether it's decades. But the reality is, 
until the truths of God's word come into our hearts and minds, we are, from God's perspective, internally, on the metric scale that actually matters, we are ignorant. We don't have understanding. There are many people who are way more intelligent and way more knowledgeable to me than me or you. But if they do not know the Lord and they do not know the scriptures, they do not have understanding. So the psalmist, my final point, final sentence about the psalmist that I'm praying that you and I would have is that the psalmist is skeptical of independent thinking. And by that, I mean thinking that is not dependent upon God and his word. He is skeptical of independent thinking. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not, Mike, on your own understanding, the understanding of the flesh, but lean on the understanding of the truth that comes from God. This is the truth that the psalmist discovered and loved. And it's more glorious than a diamond. It's more glorious than anything. It's worth taking the time to, to, to write 22 stanzas with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet guiding it, putting that word before us and all the people of God since he wrote it. Let's stand together and pray together as we finish our time and in this setting and we move to conversations and other fellowship. As I've said and continue to say, be mindful of this virus among us and the various ways that people are responding to it. Love your neighbor. Let's pray together as, as we uh, fellowship in just a moment. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, I pray that not a one of us here today would be feeling miserable right now, but we would be feeling hopeful because no matter whether, no matter where we are in this spectrum, whether you have never read the Bible in your entire life or whether you read it every single day, whether you have memorized tons of scripture or none, I pray that each one of us here, no matter where we have been, would be hopeful today and full of enthusiasm because it is your will to move each of us to that place of being tethered to your word. You invite us to be full of joy and hope and delight as the psalmist is. So move us to that place no matter where we have been. And may we glorify you and live joyful lives as we walk this journey. Lord, we're thankful for this time together. We're thankful that we could be outside again this week. And Lord willing, another two weeks before we move inside. Help us to enjoy being out here and each other today. And we pray when we leave uh, this property that we would leave with the love of God the Father, the grace and mercy of God the Son, and the empowering work of God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.